the key is you have to add value, irrespective of how old you are. But the biggest challenge I think young leaders have leading more experienced people is you have to add value. Small businesses are the backbone of the American economy and here in Michigan. But only 50% will make it five years in business. On Mitten Money, host William Zank will focus on helping Michigan-based business owners with the tough questions that will help them succeed. How do I expand my business? What options do I have for retirement? How do I move forward? Having worked with small business owners throughout his entire career and with excellent attention to detail and strong analytical skills, William Zank of TriStar Trust will unearth answers to these questions and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Mint and Money. This podcast will focus on helping Michigan-based business owners find the answers to the tough questions that will help them succeed. This week, we're excited to have on Mr. Garber, who is the current president and owner of Garber Management Group, which employs over 2,000 people and is headquartered in Saginaw, Michigan. They have been in business since 1907 and currently have over 23 car dealerships spread across the country. He's also been a generous contributor to many community organizations and nonprofits throughout the Great Lakes Bay region. Without further ado, welcome Mr. Garber to Mint Money. Thanks, Will. Pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day and spending some time with us and especially with this podcast. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background and what's the path that you took to get to your current position? Well, Will, I think you gave a bit of my background, but uh, long story short, I'm third generation in a family business. My grandfather went to work for the founder of General Motors, Willie Durant, 1907, went to work for Buick Motor Division. Actually, before General Motors was formed, Buick was an entity before the Oldsmobile, Chevrolet, and Buick all came together. And uh, he grew up in the Lansing area and worked directly with Durant. His job was establishing dealerships, and he established in his first six months a dealership location in Battle Creek, Michigan, and one in Saginaw, Michigan. Those were factory stores. And shortly after they opened Durant, Buick, they had no money. They had to close them. And uh, before they closed the location in Saginaw, my grandfather got a, asked if he could buy the location in Saginaw. He got a couple of partners. He didn't have any money. And that's really how Garber Buick came about in Saginaw in actually about 1909. We promote 1907 because that's when Garber and Buick came together. And from there, he grew the organization. He had six children, four boys. They were all in the business. And my father, Dick, ran the Buick store in Saginaw. And he passed away at a very early age. He passed away in 1972. I was 16 years old at the time. And I pledged to my dad that I wanted to follow in his footsteps. I wanted to be a car dealer and and run Garber Buick was really what the goal was. My uncle took over the business. And my mentor, a gentleman by the name of Brady Denton, Brady was very, very helpful to me, taught me the business and promoted me to Buick Motor Vision. And Buick approved me to be a dealer on my 25th birthday in 1980. So that's kind of how it all started. And 1980 was an interesting time. High interest rates, interest rates in the high teens. No one would likely remember that. High gas prices, high unemployment. It was really a very difficult time. But honestly, what a great time to take over a business because it gave me a chance to make some of the tough decisions that needed to get made in the business. It had been there for 75 years and the tough economy and business conditions gave me a chance to do that. And Turned out we were halfway decent at it, and then we wanted to grow the company from there. That must have been a really interesting ride taking over the company at the old age of 25. And so do you mind talking a little further into that and then how maybe different peers were also responding to more of a 
uncharacteristic younger owner within the business? The key is you have to add value, irrespective of how old you are. But the biggest challenge I think young leaders have leading more experienced people is you have to add value. And if you add value to their life, to their career, they're going to accept you and you're going to be just fine. The challenge is when you don't add value, then you're not going to get their support and you can have real challenges. So I knew the folks. Obviously, I along the way developed enough competence that I could add to their success, to their career success. And once that starts to happen, then they'll follow you. But you've got to earn that. No, definitely. That makes sense. And so talking a little bit about challenges, obviously, 2020 has been a very irregular year with COVID-19. And how did the coronavirus affect your businesses? The automobile industry has, I think, been an anomaly compared to the general economy, although there's a lot of businesses and, and a lot of industries that have really thrived in 2020. In our case, we do business in six states. And when the pandemic really hit and started closing things down in March, we are out of business in essentially four of the six states. We are fortunate that we remained open in Florida and South Carolina. So we had a little bit of revenue coming in. But we are really out of business from mid-March, really almost until June 1st. And then once things opened up again, you know, we had the phenomenon of pent-up demand. We had the stimulus money that put a lot of income in folks' pockets. So buying a car became reasonably popular. The challenge for us was our supplies were very limited. Most of our brands and franchises are General Motors. We'd just come off the strike and we we're just getting back to a tolerable day of supply. And then we had the pandemic, then we didn't get inventory. So we experienced the phenomenon of greater demand for our products than supply. So a car market that the last previous five years sold over 17 million cars, it was really a buyer's market. It's been a seller's market for the last six months of 2020. And dealers and ourselves included have benefited from low carrying costs, historically low interest rates. We haven't been spending money on marketing. Our advertising costs have been slashed in half, in some cases more. And then because we've had limited product, our margins have gone up and there's really been a feeding frenzy for some of our hotter products, particularly trucks and SUVs. As a result, if retail automobile business, even though we didn't sell as many cars, as an industry, we're going to sell about 14 million six versus or 17 million the year before. It's down about 16%. But that being said, financially, it was a very rewarding year. Have you started to see more people buy less cars and morph into buying more of SUVs and crossovers? We sure have, Will. And it's a combination of reasons. Number one, the sport utilities, the crossovers are, have become so efficient. A lot of car buyers are purchasing them. But candidly, there aren't many car options any longer. As an industry, 76% of the vehicles sold are trucks and SUVs and only 24 cars. In our company, it's closer to 10% cars because many of our brands don't even offer them any longer. Is there a reason behind the other automakers not offering the smaller sedans or the sedans in general? Well, they predicate all their decisions on supply and demand. And they saw the desire and the demand for cars continue to decline. So they kept building fewer of them. And then it's kind of the law of diminishing returns. And then you don't build them. You can't sell what you don't build. The dealers can't sell what they don't have in stock. So it's a combination of things. There is a thought that the millennials are going to be, they grew up, you know, in the backseat of vans and with soccer mom and that sort of thing, that they may want to go back to automobiles, something different than they grew up in, but time will tell. But it'll be interesting, the transition. 
Now, a lot of the high-end, a lot of the luxury cars, they're still producing automobiles, but Chevrolet, Ford, Chrysler, not many car offerings, just a handful in there for folks. So car sales, like what you're describing, like other industries can be cyclical, whether it's maybe uh, COVID-19 or other cyclical trends going on with the economy. Does that make planning for certain life goals tough? The business used to be very cyclical. And I'll take Michigan, for example. Our business, the climate, the season, fall, spring, winter, used to have a big impact on car sales. Candidly, it doesn't today. We sell cars when the manufacturer wants to sell cars. Our markup is so small on new cars, but the manufacturer's got a lot of money to work with. So when they decide to put money on the hood, when they decide to put a lease special together, we sell a lot of vehicles when that happens. For example, we used to not sell a lot of cars in December and January. It was hard to compete against Santa Claus. Today, December is one of the biggest months. It's traditionally our first or second biggest month in the entire year. So a lot of vehicles are being sold. So it's kind of irrelevant to the climate or anything else. What are your own views on money? Has your own view on money changed over time? Not particularly. I have always kind of followed the trends and candidly, the returns and equities over the years, not every year, but if you look at five and look at it over the course of a decade, they have traditionally in my lifetime paid out at much higher returns than any fixed income, bonds, anything of the sort. So most of my portfolio, 90% plus, right or wrong or indifferent, has been in equities. And I'm still working. I'm still earning money. So I can afford a down year, those sorts of things. Not everybody's in that same case, but I'm probably a little more aggressive than maybe some. Looking out to the future, what has you excited for the automobile industry? As you start to go look at different news headlines, people are starting to give a little bit of picture for what they believe the future might look like, whether that's electric cars or driverless cars. What are your own thoughts on that? And what has you excited for the future? Well, I think um, the car business is in so many respects. At one time, it represented about 20% of the jobs in the United States of America, either from the manufacturing side, on the retail side, supplier side, all those sorts of things. And it's ever-changing. And uh, there are no it doesn't appear any two days, two weeks, two months, two years alike. And there are so many interesting options that lie ahead, whether they're electric, whether they're autonomous. And it's going to be really interesting to see how our economy adjusts and adapts to them. And the products are just absolutely incredible how good they've gotten. When I started in the business, 60 or 70% of the service volume was warranty work. And that was a 12,000 mile. 12-month warranty. Today, warranty represents about 10 or 15% of our service volume, and the warranties run 60, 80, 100,000 miles. That's how good the cars have gotten. So that's exciting. But it's going to be really, really interesting. There's a big push today, particularly for electric. Autonomous cars, I think, have been set back through the pandemic. But electric cars, every manufacturer is all in. And they're saying by the mid-2000s, 25 or 30% of the new cars we're going to be selling are going to be electric. But there's some work to be done because, candidly, we don't really see the demand, if I could be honest. But we've got to get the mileage up. we got to get the range for an electric car to go over 300 miles, in my opinion. And we've got to get the cost competitive because today it's it's twelve dollars or $15,000 more. And the average consumer, you know, that adds another $150 a month to your payment. And that doesn't pencil with the cost of gas. And the cost of gas with all these things floating around is not going to go up. 
it's going to be interesting, but it's exciting. It really is exciting and more questions than answers, candidly. So <laughs> it's a little bit hanging on to a roller coaster. We'll see where it goes. Oh, that's great. What is your involvement with conscious capitalism and what does it mean to you and your company? When Gene Pickleman introduced me to the concept of conscious capitalism, it just seemed like such an obvious initiative. And I know it's not, but I just believe that businesses have a responsibility to give back. I believe that businesses calling is greater than just a return on investment for the shareholders. It's got to be, or the stockholders, it's got to be good for the entire entity. And that includes the shareholders, the community, the staff, and everyone. And when you build that culture, you find out you get a better return on investment than you did otherwise. So I grew up with being introduced to what my grandfather did in the community. My father was committed and my mother was involved with the arts in the community. And it's just logical that we follow suit. And it's been I have to say, self-serving, it's been great for business. It's been great for our staff. Not a week goes by where our staff doesn't acknowledge that they ran into someone who ran into someone who we did this or we did that. And it really makes them proud of where they work. And retention of staff is the key to success in business today because turnover is just devastating at any level. So it's good for our staff. It's a pride. And people do business, you know, a lot of people like to do business with folks that do business with them. There's 40% of car buyers out there that are influenced by a dealership, as an example, that gives back to the community. So it has an influence on that. I think it's really candidly given us a considerable competitive edge in mid-Michigan, for example. And it's been really good right across the board. And most importantly, it helps meet the needs in the community. And our community has so many needs. And you see the evolution of what's happened in business and big box retailing and that sort of stuff. Respectfully, our local economies and communities, we're not going to get money from the big boxes. So they're relying on the small businesses and the family-owned businesses and the businesses that have roots in our community for funding so that they can continue to provide the services to those in need in our region. Sure. And then one point that I really want to highlight that you mentioned just for all the listeners out there. So one thing that you said was being able to adopt a conscious capitalism type of culture within your company has helped reduce turnover by quite a bit. Do you mind touching a little bit upon that? Yeah, I will, Will. And uh, we've got the facts to back that up. Our organization in mid-Michigan, as an example, represents about the third of the size of our organization, you know, outstate. But within mid-Michigan, that third, our Turnover is half of what it is throughout the rest of the United States. And I think we're pretty good, better than most car dealerships, but the brand that we've created in mid-Michigan. So our turnover is less than half of what it is outstate. And our profits are higher traditionally than we experience outstate. And a lot of that has to do with employer retention. So the facts would back it up and it works. It works. It's good, again, for all the stakeholders, all the shareholders. It works. It sounds like too, with just this kind of war on talent and being able to help retain those key employees, it just sounds like a win-win for not only the employer, but the employee as well. No. And well, one of the things that I'm probably most proud of is that we have over 20 staff members in mid-Michigan that sit on almost 30 nonprofit boards, hospital boards, chamber of commerce boards, economic development boards, that Dick Garber is not telling them 
You got to go sit on the chamber board. You got to be on the Boys and Girls Club. No, these folks are doing it on their own volition. They're investing their own time and treasure to make a difference. And not, again, because I'm asking them, because it's the culture of our organization. And I'm really, really proud of that. And I think kind of a, a last nice closing question for you, especially being within the automobile industry. I know it must be pretty hard to go pick one car out of so many, but what would you say is your favorite car? Well, I can't answer that, Will, because <laughs> I, I don't know who's listening to this. But but obviously, out of loyalty, I mean, Buick brought me to the dance. So I have a real sensitive spot for that. Candidly, I've been driving Chevrolet SUVs. And I'm not a car guy. I'm really a people guy. So the cars themselves are, I won't say they're complete commodities to me, but I'm just grateful. I, I have one of the few company cars in the organization that I'm grateful for. But I'm driving a Chevrolet Blazer. It's fabulous. My vehicle of choice is probably a Chevrolet Tahoe. Now, if I was in Rochester, New York, maybe I'd drive an Audi. I don't know. <laughs> but I want to make sure we're driving something locally, obviously, Will, that we sell in service. Well, thank you. So thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Mitt and Money. If you haven't already, please rate and review our podcast. Additionally, please subscribe so you don't miss when our new episodes drop. Thank you. You've been listening to Mitt and Money, sponsored by TriStar Trust. Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Mm-hmm.